Hello and welcome to the Compass Festival podcast. If you didn't already know, Compass Live Art is the driving force behind the biennial Compass Festival. We present playful and interactive encounters across the city of Leeds in all kinds of places and spaces. Previously, we've held medieval animal trials, collected a thousand strangers' handshakes in clay, and even let a chicken answer your innermost questions. Normally, we bring all these projects together in a 10-day festival, but this year we're spreading them out over 2021. And to give you a taste of what to expect, for the next four weeks, we'll be chatting to artists, makers, and local folk all about the themes and concerns of some of our upcoming projects. This week, we're joined by award-winning theatre and digital art company, ZUUK, to talk about their projects Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight. Today, I'm here with Georges and Jaji um, to hear about the making of Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight. And I say here deliberately and intently as listening and the power of listening is at the heart of, of this work. Um, but first, to introduce myself, um, I am Pam Johnson and... Um, really, my background in the arts is that I was a dancer in a former, former life um, for around 10 years. Um, I retired um, from performing at the age of 30 and launched into a career of um, education outreach in dance, working with a couple of organisations to support their outreach and engagement, particularly connecting with communities um, and introducing people to the arts and create and and creative new creative opportunities for the first time um i did uh, an about to turn again um in 2003 when i joined the arts council for and i stayed there for 16 years in manchester in yorkshire and for the last 6 years in london but right now um i'm happy to say that i'm back home in leeds um where i work with leeds city council as their head of culture development george and jaji welcome um, please introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Jaji and I have uh, longish dark hair with big hooped earrings and a girl's and boys on either side of my head. I'm wearing dark glasses and a kind of sunflowery top. Um, I'm uh, artistic director of ZU UK. Uh, we make work that is really concerned with mediating the space between strangers and it can happen on all different kinds of platforms. So um, often my role within the company will change. Sometimes I'm more of the writer um, or director. I also work with a lot of creative technologists um, and create all kinds of different sorts of experiences. Um, and yeah, that's that's me. Hi there, I am Jorge Lopez Ramos, and today I'm wearing a white shirt with lobsters, red lobsters in it, and large glasses, and very little hair, but some facial hair, sort of greyish around beard and moustache. And I work with Jaji at ZU UK as executive director. Uh, we've been working together for a couple of decades um, around work that is somehow relating to interactivity or participation, uh, often in public spaces. Uh, so we make work that more often than not involves technology, but is not about technology. Um, and what drives most of the work of the company 
is an interest in what happens between people, between strangers, between players, between audience members, uh, and the space and sort of negotiating, navigating and curating the space between them. Thank you, George and Jaji. Um, just, I, I forget this every time, but again, just to um, describe myself, I am a black woman. I have black hair, which is pulled back with a parting on the left-hand side, and I'm wearing round-rimmed glasses and a black roll-neck top. <laughs> it's a real pleasure to be in the space with you again, um, guys. Um, it's you know, What was the inspiration between, behind um, Pick Me Up and, and Hold Me Tight? Uh, so um, the project came about five years ago because we had unfortunately lost what felt like quite a lot of people who had decided to take themselves away uh, from the world. And um, that was that hurt me a lot personally because I myself had suffered uh, with quite a fair bit of suicidation in the past and I felt I was indeed kind of living proof that there can be a way out of that darkness. And um, I also observed that these friends and colleagues and loved ones were all um, men. And it made me look into the statistics in that area, which suggested that there was this new demographic that had taken the lead, um, which was older men, whereas previously it had been uh, younger uh, men. At that same time, we were working a lot with telecommunication technology. And so we thought it would be incredible to ring all the remaining phone booths in the UK at that time at the peak spike in the year of people taking their own lives, which um, according to the Office of National Statistics is January the 1st at 11 a.m., so that was kind of how it really sort of started, started, you know, it was like this, this sort of meeting of, of what we were working with at the time, which was the phones, but also this, this, um, this, uh, like this new, this new thing that was changing in society and, and just bringing up the fact that we were living in times of, you know, social and, and mental and environmental crisis. And the phone boxes to me chimed really well with this feeling of, you know, like obsoleteness, unused, forgotten, abandoned, not not needed anymore, out of date, like losing that vital service that they that they once provided. And I felt like that chimed well with this new demographic that we were seeing. That's incredible. I was on your site and and looked at the map of phone boxes and was absolutely fascinated that, you know, I'm in my home hometown and my home city of Leeds and to see this the the map of phone boxes really right across the city um including round the corner from where I live that that actually I I I now disregard because of course you know so many people have have mobile phones um it, it was really fascinating that the, that there are still public phone boxes out there so how, how do well, you how do you do that how do you go about mapping where these phone boxes are and and whether they work or not yeah well that is a very special uh gift through the relationship with compass festival in leeds it, uh, we've been talking about this for a long time 
and the project just grew from just, I say just, making all the phones ring to actually visiting each and every phone across the whole of Leeds and, and actually mapping them. And, and this was a project that took um, about three or four missions uh, with volunteers, a huge kind of community uh, of Leeds uh, residents that just signed up for going out and mapping the phones and testing each and every one of them. So that map that you see is uh, completely created by the residents of Leeds and is an accurate representation at the time of visit as to how, uh, what condition uh, they were in or whether they were there at all. Uh, even from beginning of mapping at the end of last year to this year, you, you have some of the phones uh, disappear or be removed or have kind of warnings that they are about to be removed. So it's very much a live map and is a snapshot of this moment. Um, but it's something we didn't imagine would be possible until we um, we kind of made this joint plan to to bring the project to Leeds. Gosh, that is a yeah, labour of love. In their heyday, the the there were around eighty four thousand phones in the UK, and now there's little more than thirty three thousand and out of those you know it's anyone's guess really who or how many of those are working because bt is uh, failing in its um universal service obligation to look after the phones in the way that the that they were originally intended to look after them once they had been privatized it's extraordinary it's um i've set myself a mission that tomorrow morning um before 11 a.m., I'm going to go out and use a, a public phone because, again, it's something that really just dropped out of, of my being, out of my life. And actually, when you stop using them, it's incredible how you stop seeing them as well. So it's really so you've reintroduced, I think, a part of, of my city to me in, in the strangest in the strangest way. But how do you do you make them ring? So, um, you know, I. I've got to mention the fact that that you're in Brazil right now and, you know, Leeds is five. I, I, I did the, the research. So give us give or take a few miles. You are five thousand five hundred and fifty two miles away from us. Um, so how do you make them ring? Uh, so, yeah, we work with an amazing team, uh, an amazing team of people, uh, uh, some of them who are in Leeds uh, from the festival, some of them who are in London, um, and some of them who are in other cities and, and work remotely even before the pandemic. And that's a mixture of people who have supported with collecting data from the mapping exercises, creating the map, creating the system behind the, you know, the, 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 not just the ringing of the phones, but the mapping of each interaction to look after each moment some phone, a phone gets or doesn't get picked up, what happens for how long, so we can keep looking after those uh, relationships. Um, so yeah, it's a system that was developed by a technologist for this purpose only, and it, it, it's getting more and more uh, accurate at kind of looking after these um, these phone calls and 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 the, and the audio experience that lasts around nine to ten minutes. It's incredible. There's something, um, there's a common thread that I picked up from all of your works and it's the, the, 
the role or the place of the audience in all of your works that it's it's never secondary it's never outside of the work that's made but but the the audience or participant experience is very central to to that work so how how do you it's another tech question but how do you um track whether the phones are ringing and that people are picking the phones up or do you not yeah, we do. There's a system that Sam has written in, uh, which means that we can see which phones got picked up and um, and whether they were listened to uh, the whole way through. Um, that's something that's actually quite quite easy to track. Yeah, we we can tell we can tell whether a phone has been answered or not, and for how long uh, the call. How long the call lasted? This is a nine and a half minute experience about listening, about how we listen, and what happens when we listen better. This phone that we are on right now was built for listening, before smartphones and short attention spans, but phone boxes, they're being phased out now as they're not needed much anymore and the very nature of listening has changed. I found myself um, listening quite a few times, really, to the to the audio, um, and and I think what struck me in a, in an incredibly busy week and an incredibly busy world that um, that I had to slow down, that I had to pause, and and that I was in in a space of mindfulness, and you know, giving myself the permission to stop and to pause and to listen. Um, and and it struck me that that again, you know, though I stopped looking for and seeing, you know, public phones, as you know, as I'm as I'm roaming about the city, it really struck me that um, that I perhaps don't take the same amount of time, or I don't stop to listen, perhaps as much as as I could, or or that I should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think what you said is is really important in terms of the rushing because it feels like the more fast paced and the manic quality of modern life, you know, think, you know, rush hour and road rage. And of course, that's all been sort of a bit um, interrupted now by the pandemic. So in some ways we can see it even clearer, you know, how we were living before. But it's always interested me how little of our human interactions are not based on capitalist needs, you know? So like how much of our human interactions are just are sort of always around something transactional as opposed to um, listening and by, listen, to listen is to put someone else's speaking or thinking or feeling uh, first. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I think the slowing down is important because I definitely have come to the conclusion that unless you're responding, um, unless you're kind of responding with your whole self, which would require you to slow down and to stop. Um, and unless I'm stopped, I can't, I can't be uh, open to be changed by you. So there's a sort of willingness to be changed by you whoever's talk whoever's talking to you then you're probably not really listening um and i think that that's something that's really important about um about 
about listening and what then that means in terms of uh, people taking their own lives, how that how that links back around to creating the world as a better place because of the potential power of better listening. Um, there's this really nice, I mean, uh, I, I'm far from religious, I'm a committed atheist, but there is a really nice story about um, a nun who's asked, when an interviewer asks her, uh, what do you say when you pray? And she answered, I listen. And so then the interviewer said, okay, then, then what does God say? And then she says, he listens. And I just thought that there was something incredibly beautiful and incredibly inspirational for me when I was writing uh, PMU to think about that, to think about that really succinct way of getting to the intimacy of what listening might be, the power of it. Do you know what I mean? I I so do. It's, it's um, I found myself uh, when I listened each time and actually successive times um, having to give myself permission to stop um and and to listen and then i practiced um active listening um on on work calls you know when i was back in front of my phone uh, back in front of my computer again and it's that it's it's being comfortable as well with the you know with the silences between and not not rushing to fill the space or 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 um not not putting so much importance on what you want to say but actually being being relaxed enough and and respectful enough actually to to respond to what's coming into your space at that time it's a whole different yeah. experience yeah yeah and it's and and then it kind of powers up this other thing which i think we've also lost which is curiosity right like generous listening is powered by curiosity this this kind of virtue that we can we can invite into ourselves in order to make listening more instinctive. There's a kind of curiousness because the listener wants to understand the other person. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what, um, and I can imagine that, the, you know, it's, it's quite broad ranging, especially given what we've just said, but what experience would you want um, your, the, the participants or the audience to have? You know, they, they pick up the phone. Do you have a, a a particular thing that you want them to take away from that experience? Yeah, I do. Oh. But George, maybe you want to go first. Oh, just briefly. I think there is a, a, a something that's a bit more general about all of our work. Is this? Um, well, I guess because both Jaja and I um, are immigrants that uh, kind of come from a working class background, um, that that the the work we we sort of always want to make sure the work that we make is not putting people off from participating and is not coming across as um, work meant for us for a, for a kind of selected few or, or a specific group of people. And so that attracts us to public spaces, but it also attracts us to things like ringing phones where, you know, it it's a fairly kind of familiar setting that, there is a ringing phone, and that means that there's an invitation to participate. So it's embedded in the action of a ringing phone. Is you you can pick it up, and you can also not. And and I think there's that uh, desire for for audiences to notice an invitation, 
decline or take it up. And and once they do take it up, to not feel frightened or feel that they should know more, uh, that they won't understand it. So I think the first, in, in answer to your question, the first thing we want audiences to feel is that they can belong, that they can be, um, it's for them, right? It's, it's, it's right for them at that moment and they can feel like it's for them and they can own it. Um, I don't know what Jadji wanted to talk specifically about this project. Well, um, I feel I feel like the question was about what we, what I wanted people to understand from 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 pick me up and hold me tight, um, and I think probably my overwhelming desire is um, for audiences to recognise that neoliberal forces are making us worse listeners and that that isn't their fault and that we are not, uh, we ordinary people are not to blame for that. Uh, and I want, I would love for that connection to be made because I think that everybody would be a better listener if they could be. And all of that means, in my opinion, that uh, you're a wonderful human being, even if you if you think you're not, you are. And everything that happens between me, the artist, and the person on the phone indicates that because they are here and they are necessary. Um, and so I think that that's the most uh, precious thing that I uh, meditate on when I think about people picking up the phones. Is this is this a uh, connection and that connection that they're making with us can only happen because they're responding to um, some some real resistance against um, neoliberal forces and values that will tell you, you know, that these kinds of things are a waste of time. And so we're able to learn to listen better to voices that escape the usual, the usual registers of meaning. Um, yeah, it's a really powerful, um, a powerful word and a powerful thought um, in these times. Connection, after a year of, um, you know, when, when we've been hearing distance, distance, you know, all of the time, you know, um, you know that that your your life relies on distance, um, and so yeah. how powerful that this is about. Um, this is about, as you say, an invitation to connect. Yeah, I mean, I had to rewrite the script because the old script uh, didn't make much sense. I mean, it did, but it didn't. It just it was interesting that I had to then do quite a lot of extra work to um, the original script and to talk about, you know, the not just the pandemic, but also the um, also the the. Uh, the crazy political turbulent year that was that was 2020. But let's keep it light. Let's take a look at the world as it is right now. Can you see the sky, its textures, its color? It's officially spring. There's a sweetness to the air. There's something about how weather, however changeable, is mostly quite everyday, and yet it's so extraordinary in its ordinariness. And do you hear the quiet underneath it all? 
It's in that quiet that we do not stand out and that we are not separate from nature. It's in the quiet we become extraordinary in our ordinariness. I want to return to the um, the question around how people in Leeds can get involved really at the end. But I, um, if it's all right, I'd, I'd like to probe a little bit about your, your other work because I really do have this fascination with... Um, just the importance and the value that you place on on your audience and participants where, you know, in a system that, you know, often or for the longest time, you know, thought that audiences, you know, sat, the most important audiences went to the theatre and they sat in a seat and and a curtain went up and came down. And then um, almost lower in the hierarchy was this idea of participation as as less important. And that's and that's really beginning to shift, but it's it's something that's been integrated in your practice for 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 some time. Um, could you tell me about about um, you know your other other another work or more of your work that that does yeah. that that places the audience um, at the center? Yeah, definitely. Um, so. Uh, the well one of the last things that we made if we look at just the kind of more recent style of things that we made uh, one of the things that we made is called binaural dinner date and uh, that is a live performance for two people um, that come into a restaurant uh, and sit at a dining table that also is going to happen in Leeds actually I think there's a plan for that anyway um, and it has a real sort of dating agency uh, attached to it so um, you can come as a stranger really looking for a date and we try to match you up with somebody um, you can also come as as a couple and you can also come as just somebody who wants to experience the live performance um, and that one is probably our closest one to really interrogating uh, the space uh, between strangers. Um, so that's a show that is still running um, and, and, and the pandemic definitely affected that one because <laughs> that was, is not possible to, to happen um, in this, in this uh, current situation. Um, so we started to make more work that was online in order to respond. And we created a game show uh, called Playground. And now that's been really interesting because we work so much with intimacy um, that we also were, you know, trying to set ourselves the challenge of is it possible to create intimacy uh, digitally, you know, across across things like using platforms um, like this one. And we went quite deep into Zoom and looked at all its um, affordances and see what it what it could do. But we also started to um, mess about with hacking with things with the computer. So, for example, just really simple things like uh, you can try this uh, getting together with a bunch of people and, and all putting a blanket over your heads and the computer uh, creates a hugely different atmosphere. So, you know, just messing about with things like that to see what happens when you when you just tweak the things that you already have. Um, one of the things that I thought personally was the most moving was a game that we played 
with people online where they um, where they give us their address and it was the time when you could only go out for one walk it was quite it was, it was quite a thing at the time like you can go for one walk a day you know it's like oh what are you going to do with this one walk you know yeah it became so like ah this this epic adventure and so uh, we asked people we we shared screens and then somebody would talk us through their walk you know so it's like okay this is my front door and then I go out of here and then they would tell us like turn left now I go through the park this is the this is the um old lady that is always sitting on the bench da, 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 da. and they and you know you would you would accompany them on their walk in real time on google maps and it sounds pretty cold on paper but actually in reality is something really beautiful about it really beautiful being able to share that that intensely personal thing the other thing that's interesting about intimacy and being online is that while the pandemic has created this really you know had this incredibly atomizing effect on society where we're all separate 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 and we're you know isolated and distanced um it is also meant that we're we're getting um like ironically and conversely we're kind of getting into people's living room spaces or bedroom spaces and sort of seeing parts of their lives that we would never have seen otherwise you can work with a colleague for 20 years and never know what the inside of their kitchen cupboard looks like and those spaces are really super interesting to me so we had another game where we were kind of swapping photos of the insides of people's fridges, the inside of their rubbish bin, um, you know, the under the bed, you know, all kinds of places that even even pre-pandemic you would never have looked in <laughs> um, unless you were a stalker, like a kind of professional stalker. Um, <laughs> and And creating this like very interesting ways in so I guess in our work we're always looking for what are the ways in to each other how do we create stronger bonds and not and try to resist what um, neoliberal culture wants us to resist which is being together that's what it wants it wants us atomized um, and and competitive and um, you know scrabbling around for you know fighting each other for the crumbs sort of thing and so there's that pressure um and yes yeah, so those were the online things and then we also created project perfect stranger which again is an at distance project this was an international project this was much more of a headache really hard but really worthwhile <laughs> it was just very hard because of time zones and stuff but essentially what we did was we had um uh, a huge amount of people sign up and then we we randomly matchmaked them, which was probably the hardest bit, like to just let go and trust in serendipity and just go, all right, we're just going to do, you know, names out of a hat sort of thing. So we matched people and then we would, then their relationship started on WhatsApp, but they would have to be completely anonymous. So, you know, if it was you and I, I wouldn't know that you were, um, well, I wouldn't know that you were Pam. I wouldn't know that you were black. I wouldn't know that you were you wore glasses. I wouldn't know um, that you know. I wouldn't know gender. I wouldn't know any of the things that might become a filter ordinarily between us. You know that we might inadvertently be making all sorts of assumptions about. 
And so um, that was a really incredible project because you were able to have probably the, it's probably the time where it's been the, the most purest in terms of just a being, putting a being in contact with another being with none of the other stuff around it, sort of. Um, and then they had, you know, and then there was a moment where they did see each other and then they could decide whether or not they would continue their relationship or not. Um, and so out of our work, what I, what I really love is that it, it, it uh, can bring about life-changing experiences. So people do get together, people have got together on binaural dinner date, they do enter relationships uh, or become friends and they've stayed friends since those projects, which is, you know, just, just a really cute, nice kind of quirky outcome um, still waiting for my wedding invites um, and people people naming their first children after me, I would expect. Um, so yeah, that, that sort of holding the space steady through the pandemic has been really interesting, especially using a lot of uh, lightheartedness when it comes to the game show. So trying to understand that humour is actually a way of building um, robustness and you know and there's science that says that I can point you in the direction of it if you need but there's science that talks about humor being a huge factor in how we deal with things and how we dealt with the pandemic and and you can see that people were doing it like naturally right it just went like meme crazy just the things that people were sending each other to survive was just brilliant it was just like <laughs> like so um so so hard so I mean, it yeah. pro it provokes two questions for me. So, um, do you think the pandemic has changed your practice? That lockdown has changed your practice in any way? And then the other one, which is a really big question, you know, the there's a lot of talk about about recovery, um, and and you know, sometimes people talk about economic recovery and social recovery, and they talk about a new normal, um, but. It, thinking about the the real value of kind of you know the intimacy the interactions the connections that your work really creates for people do you hope for a different kind of recovery that that really that that brings people together and and what would that be so two really big questions do you think the pandemic and lockdown has changed your work and what what is what's your best recovery there you go and I know that Zhaji has a lot to say on this. So I'll, I have a very brief answer and then I'll hand over to Zhaji. Um, I think that there is another condition to our work uh, that makes us even kind of more reflexive than we already inclined to be. Uh, because when you are creating work for participants with this level of care, you need to constantly revise what you're doing and test and hear from people what what what's their perception of what they're doing what's their experience and, and iterate and iterate but because we also have uh, students we run an ma program um, and have them for the last four years there is yet another perspective to look through the eyes of these ma students these artists who are making their work and who this year happen to be some of the hardest hit by the pandemic you know students have had a very difficult time uh, on so many levels, financially, mental health, and, and, and so on. So it's been a, a, quite a gift to go through that with our students and, and keep on asking ourselves, what do we do next? 
it, it, where every nothing is nothing can be assumed whether we can meet in person this week and the next one we can't whether this work is appropriate or that work whether they'll have audiences or not and where will they be so it's been so fundamental uh that in the in answer to the question has your practice changed uh it, it well maybe the practice uh itself hasn't but what has changed is our need to reevaluate on a day-to-day basis and a need to really kind of throw away a lot of assumptions about what we thought could or couldn't work or should or shouldn't work yeah um i mean yeah completely um so <laughs> what i think is that yeah your in answer to your question is yes um uh, pretty much everything has changed um mainly on the level of um of politics um because uh it has been so clear that in terms of the whole oh we're all in this together bullshit that was touted around in the in you know in times of austerity um we can see in the pandemic working class people especially working class women are carrying the work burden of the entire pandemic as are um uh people from uh, black and ethnic minority groups uh because they have more they work more in caring people facing jobs their hours have been cut um they're less likely to be able to work from home during the pandemic so it's a total class and gender issue that the pandemic has brought into stark relief you know that the essential work that is undertaken by working class women and also the risks that is bringing into their working lives and their well-being and and the whole you know deepening of the problems in terms of that that already existed that already existed which was you know low level panic low level t- um anxiety around job loss work instability financial hardship you know huge insecurity anyway um and that only the privileged few really were able to protect themselves from those um difficulties so yeah class you know i i feel like we've made some decisions now and the and that the the team um are really supporting me in moving the company towards uh looking at the the gap between um the you know the differences between um what it's like for working class people in terms of both accessing arts but also just what it what you know what really are those cracks that we don't look at uh, class being kind of a bit weird and a bit sort of um the last taboo um and in terms of uh the normal and going back to the normal yeah this is like a really huge thing for me i think we've got lots of new terms that have come up since the pandemic to describe like everything new that we've been experiencing and one of the phrases that keeps coming up is this thing called the new normal and um i'm really interested in what uh, zayuddin sardar says about that phrase is that it conceals the most and yet says the least because what is normal you know we generally accept that normal is what we called what we call connecting yesterday with tomorrow it's sort of suggestive of a continuity um but previously we were you know in the old days before covid where we the change was always so accelerated anyway that a feeling of a reliable normality was was in itself a kind of illusion and a new normal implies an old normal but the old normal was constantly mutating in such a way that it was really unreliable and maybe um any sort of new normal would be equally um 
illusory. And so in a, in a post-normal world, we have to accept that we're transitioning. You know, it's a time of upheaval. It's a time of not knowing. It's a time of a social and cultural um, messiness with this, with this need for people to have a parallel a realignment of power because there is very little at the moment, you know, that deserves our trust. And all those paradigms and values from old normal, as it were, have no place in the world, I think, post-COVID. All those old orthodoxies and established ways of thinking, they're all dying and we need to grow up and forget about returning to normal because normal was the problem, you know, in the first place. And the world is so sort of hyper interconnected, interdependent, a complex world full of contradictions, but complexity is is very close to chaos, you know, and I I think that we can expect to see a lot more chaos in 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 uh, in the currencies, in the in more pandemics, more extreme weather phenomena, more political turbulence. You know, so what is um, what is all of that going to bring us? And it's in everyone's interest, no matter who and where we are, to adjust. I think to the reality of post-normal times and know that complex problems re- require uh, complex solutions, and that. And and that, you know, and I kind of do go on about neoliberal values all the time, but it's because neo, neoliberal values are always pushing towards production and growth. And uh, whereas actually, I think we need to look at degrowth and anti-growth and less sort of may, maybe like less global as well. This idea of like just being a certain few just kind of like going across and creating, you know, internationalism as opposed to localism and that's what the pandemic has done hasn't it it's like because we were isolated in our houses there's suddenly like oh i did not know that this was 20 <laughs> 20 steps from my house i had no idea that this neighbor this and that, those are the stories that we're hearing all the time i and love it was always I, yeah i love that you know as you describe your works it's there in pmu but then when you talk about um whatever the new normal is or whatever we're we're recovering toward um there's a there's there's still a really beautiful authentic um value in there around around people um there's what i love about about pmu is that you know it uses something that everybody recognizes that everybody you know is 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 used to whether they still see it on the high street or not so when you talk about um, you know, playing game shows. It's something that, you know, people are, uh, you know, they know about game shows. When you talk about, um, you know, dating over food, we all have food, right? You take things that I think relate to humans and human life and you, 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 you create an experience for people. So in terms of accessing the arts, I say in inverted comma, or accessing creativity, there's something that is so um, democratic and open, really, about your practice that it's not hierarchical and it really does truly open up, um, you know, experiences to to again in inverted comma everyday people, which I, I find yeah. really powerful. Um, and so I'm going to just finish up by by um, going back to PMU. Um, and and tell us how can people in Leeds get involved? Remind us how we can get involved. Yeah, um, every day at eleven a.m. until Sunday, uh, the twenty eighth 
of March. Phones across Leeds will ring. They'll ring at 11 a.m. And all you need to do is be there just before 11 a.m. so you can pick up the ringing phone. And if you're not sure where they are, uh, you can go to Compass uh, Festival website or you can go to ZU UK's website and you'll find a map with information of where the phones are and the phones that are functioning and those that are not. And if you have any issues, uh, Compass also has a direct line on their website um, where they can answer any of your questions and help you get to the ringing phone. Thank you. You know, I started this conversation by talking about, um, you know, wanting to hear about your work and and what I've discovered about myself and listening by listening to some of the audio. But then I feel that there's so much that's been said in the space of an hour that's been shoehorned in that I don't feel that that, you know, I've listened as much as I would want to listen and to, and 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 probe. So I, I really encourage audiences to find out more about ZUK, ZU UK's work. And please do, I, I mean, the, I know PMU is still live, but please do come back to Leeds because there's so much more I want to learn about you and experience um, through your work. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to coming back to Leeds when this is all over. It's one of my favouritest places in the whole world. Same here. Very fond memories of our phone hunt uh, just before uh, we left. It was so nice. That is fantastic. And I didn't even pay you to say that. I love Leeds too. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you, guys. Right. You still have time to find a phone box near you and take part in Pick Me Up and Hold Me Tight. You can find your local phone box on the map on the Compass Festival website and the project runs until the 28th of March 2021. If you enjoyed this episode of the Compass Festival podcast, you might like what else we're up to. Head to our website, compassliveart.org.uk or follow us on social media at CompassFestLDS for more live art and interactive encounters in Leeds. This podcast was produced by Sable Radio and hosted by Pam Johnson.